0: Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English, with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 589 for the 22nd of April, 2018. This week, you probably use a digital camera or maybe a phone for photography these days, but what about the old negatives and color slides you have around the house? If you've considered having them digitized but you didn't like the price or the quality or both, this could be a great do-it-yourself project at home. Talk about how. In short circuits, last week I was talking about the upcoming Windows 10 Spring update This week we learn why the update has been delayed. When the Internal Revenue Services website failed on the final day of the tax season this year, the response from the IRS website managers made the problem even worse. In spare parts, only on the website, Russian hackers want control of your router and manufacturers make it all too easy for them to succeed. Crooks also want your iPhone, and they have a trick that might convince you to give them access to it. If you need something else to worry about, well, botnets are still going strong. And IBM says, big surprise here, most of us are concerned now about data security. Few people use film these days. Many of us though still have a lot of old negatives and color slides lying around the house. Maybe you've looked into having the images digitized but you didn't like the price or you didn't like the quality or you were concerned by both. Well this week let's explore how you can do the work at home. I used a well-known and highly recommended service to have some slides digitized. They did an okay job and they scanned at high resolution but there were several things I didn't really like about the service. First, the work was done in India, so it took a long time. Second, despite my spending a lot of time to organize the slides, the scans and the slides were both returned wildly out of order. Third, apparently the service had never heard of removing dust from the slides before scanning them. And fourth, the images were returned as JPEG files instead of TIFFs. I didn't want to send color negatives to the service, so I decided to do it myself when I had time. Well, now I have time. Determining which slides to send for scanning is pretty easy. Just put them on a light table and select the good ones. Negatives are another story entirely. I have far more negatives than slides, tens of thousands of them. At half a dollar or more per image, having a service do them all so that I can sort through them and toss out probably 80% of them just wasn't feasible. That's yet another reason that I decided to see what I could do at home. I wanted to use a camera, and I already have a good macro lens, but I needed something to hold the slides. NovoFlex close-up rails and a slide copy stage are seriously overpriced, but they're really the only game in town, unless you want to make your own or use a film scanner. You'll need either a macro lens or extension rings if you have a more normal lens. By the way, you'll see a lot of pictures on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week, www.techbiter.com. The primary requirements for copying slides or negatives is a solid base for the camera and a light source with a reliable color temperature. I selected a 5,000 degree Kelvin LED bulb. Copied images should be photographed using the camera's RAW mode so that you'll have the maximum amount of control later. Even if you have prints of the images, digitizing works better if you start with the color slides or negatives. Negatives, and particularly color negatives, make the process quite a bit more challenging. Starting with a transparency or a negative instead of a print, allows the digitizing process to capture the greatest amount of detail. Prints have a smaller dynamic range than film does. Prints may also have a color cast that was introduced by the lab and if the lab used textured paper the texture will show up in the copies. Even a relatively simple point and shoot camera will often be capable of capturing transparencies and negatives. But the best results will come from a digital SLR or mirrorless camera with a macro lens. I used a 100mm macro lens. There are ways to convert even a standard lens so that it can focus close enough to work, though. You'll find a lot of good, useful, reliable information in YouTube videos regarding this subject, so if you're interested, be sure to check out YouTube and see what you can find there. Some of your old slides will be badly faded. There's one you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website from about 1970. It's a picture of a little kitten, Finster, reacting rather dramatically when I frightened her, kind of by accident on purpose. The door and the wall in the background were white, but the kitten's color was wrong when I corrected for the door. Not every old image can be restored to perfection. That's a picture that seems to have been taken on ectochrome slide film it has not aged very well. Kodachrome generally ages better than Ektachrome, although properly processed Ektachrome generally uh, ages pretty well too. You'll see another picture of the cat on the TechBiter Worldwide website, picture taken about two years later on Kodachrome. There's a gray fence in the background, and it's gray. In fact, that gray fence was very helpful in setting the color balance. Most photo applications have an eyedropper tool you can use to specify something that should be neutral gray. If there's no gray fence handy, roads and sidewalks are generally good secondary choices. But I said negatives are harder. Indeed, they are. Negatives are going to be more difficult, color negatives even harder to work with because of the orange cast that's used for Well, for reasons that are far too complex and arcane to even begin to think about here. I found some medium format transparencies and negatives from 1975. The images are square. They're from a Mamiya twin lens reflex camera. The image you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website shows two images that are negatives. The others are all color transparencies. The process I demonstrate on the website uses Adobe Lightroom. But pretty much any photo editor that has a tone curve adjustment will work for you. Typically, a tone curve will have a diagonal line. Starts in the lower left corner, ends in the upper right corner. It's a graphic illustration of input to output. Dark input produces dark output. That's what you'll have if you're working with a digital image straight from your camera, or if you're working with a color slide. Color negatives reverse it all. If you're working with a negative, everything has to be reversed so that dark input produces light output, and light input produces dark output. Well, you do that by reversing the tone curve. That will get you pretty close with a black and white negative, but with a color negative, you're going to see a very blue image. You should have the option of working with a composite RGB tone curve or with individual channels, the red, green, and blue individual channels. You get the best results if you choose to work with the individual channels, but it's a lot more work. What I show on the TechBiter Worldwide website is the composite tone curve, the RGB curve. So once I reversed the tone curve so that it starts in the upper left and ends in the lower right, the colors are now positive. But the orange color cast has been replaced by a cyan cast, so the next step involves getting rid of that cyan cast. Film has an unexposed area between the pictures. You can use that to set the neutral color. So after using the white balance eyedropper on the unexposed part of the film, I got colors that were pretty accurate, but they're still quite muted earlier, I mentioned working with the individual red, green, and blue color channels. If you do that, the image will have better contrast and colors when you get to this point. So working with the individual channels will make the initial process take longer, but you'll spend less time tweaking the image and the overall results will probably be better. When you adjust the colors and the contrast, you're going to be surprised by how several of the controls function. Most will do the reverse of what you expect. The reason is pretty obvious and simple once you think about what you've done so far. You have converted a negative image to a positive image. One of the earliest steps involved flipping that tone curve to make the dark areas light and the light areas dark. So now when you adjust whites and highlights, you'll actually be affecting shadows and blacks. And when you adjust the shadows and blacks, you'll affect highlights and white. Color Temperature and Tint will also be both reversed and highly sensitive. Once you get an image adjusted the way you want it, you can use the settings as a starting point for other images. Lightroom allows users to copy any combination of settings and then apply those settings to one or more images. Another option with many applications involves saving what's called as a preset an action, or a filter that can be reused. If you choose to work with the RGB tone curve when converting a negative to a positive, saving a preset in Lightroom will make this a single-click operation. Although you could create a preset for use with the individual channels, each of the channels will still always need some adjustment. Still, creating the preset is going to save you some time. Copying settings works well when you have several images that were created in similar situations. A series of pictures taken at the same location in the same lighting conditions, for example. After copying the development settings, select another image and paste those settings onto the new image. The result won't be exactly what you want, but you'll have a starting point in which all of the major changes have already been made. Then you can apply the final tweaks. Another reason that negatives are going to be more challenging than slides is that 35mm slides are usually in slide mounts. Sometimes larger transparencies are also in mounts, but in most cases, both negatives and larger film transparencies are not mounted. So you'll need a holder of some sort and a different kind of copy setup. I use a 9x12 inch light emitting diode light table and a tripod to hold the camera. The tripod I use can be assembled so that the camera points down. Black mat board with an opening cut to fit a film strip holder minimizes extraneous light. The light box makes it possible to photograph an entire sheet of negatives if they're stored in transparent negative holders. The result is essentially a contact sheet, so individual images can be examined and evaluated. Then you can scan only the images you want to keep after removing the film from its storage page. Earlier, I mentioned a film scanner. That is another option if you don't want to use a camera for digitizing transparencies and negatives. And there's a third option. Some flatbed scanners come with attachments for film. I think a camera is better than either of those options. Film scanners, for example, are expensive and slow. You'll find some in the $100 to $300 range, but the results will be disappointing. Expect to spend $400 or more for a decent film scanner that can handle 35mm negatives and slides. If you need to scan 120 roll film, the price will approach $2,000 or exceed it. You can also expect to spend 30 seconds or more per image during the scanning process for 35mm film, more for 120. I can process a dozen images per hour using a film scanner or nearly 100 per hour using a camera. And by process I mean the image has been digitized but not yet processed using Lightroom. When it comes to the finalized processing of digitized images, you'll complete some of them in just a few seconds. Others may take hours. And flatbed scanners, well, they're expensive, they're slow, and they're cumbersome. Expect to pay $1,000 or more for a scanner that will do an acceptable job with slides and negatives. The primary advantage a flatbed scanner has is that it can scan more than one image at a time. The multiple images will all be part of a single file though, and you'll need to separate the individual images before processing them. Most flatbed scanners produce a visibly less sharp image than what can be achieved with a camera and a macro lens. Film scanners and flatbed scanners do have one advantage your camera doesn't though. The software that runs these devices will perform the magic of converting negative film images to positive digital images. No matter which method you choose, digitizing some of your old images that friends and family haven't seen for years or maybe decades is likely to provide a lot of enjoyment. In short circuits, last week about this time I was talking about the Windows 10 Spring Creators Update. How to get it if you wanted it sooner, and how to delay it if you didn't. Well, now after a lot of drum beating by Microsoft, the update is missing in action. Microsoft rolls out updates to the operating system twice a year, spring and fall. At least, that's been the procedure since Windows 10, and unlike in the past, the updates come at no charge. Microsoft had planned to launch the latest update on April 10th, but software engineers found a bug that has delayed the release, possibly for quite a while. Microsoft initially said nothing and clearly instructed their PR team at WE Communications, formerly known as Wagoner-Edstrom, to say nothing. The response was, we'll get back to you just as soon as we can. The PR team has probably explained to Microsoft the dangers of this kind of non-response, but apparently that advice is not being taken seriously. Ignoring the problem does not make it go away. Even the Microsoft Insider blog has avoided the facts. Donna Sarker has written on the blog that machines with the update are seeing a higher-than-normal rate of blue screen of death crashes. As build 17133 progressed through the rings she has written, We discovered some reliability issues we wanted to fix. In certain cases, these reliability issues could have led to a higher percentage of blue screens of death on PCs. A lot of words, not a lot of information. On the positive side, Microsoft found the bug, whatever it is, realized how serious it is, and halted deployment plans before damage could be done. Instead of creating patches for the flawed build, Microsoft will create an entire new build And that process will take at least a few weeks. So the spring update, eh, coming soon. I'm beginning to think that the IRS website is being operated by cats. Cats are great alarm clocks, but they have no talent at all when it comes to calendars. Cats, also, when they've done something dumb tend to glare at humans with an expression that says, I meant to do that. How does this apply to the Internal Revenue Services website, you ask? Well, tax payments were due on Tuesday. Anyone who delayed until then found that the agency's website was inoperable. According to a spokesperson, and I quote, certain IRS systems are experiencing technical difficulties. Taxpayers who owed money were given a one-day extension to file because the IRS website where taxpayers could make a direct payment or set up a payment plan were all failing for most of the day on Tuesday. Last year, about 5 million people filed returns on the site on that final day. Okay, so things like that happen. We understand that. The underlying problem was apparently a hardware issue, so the typical response involves placing a notice on the website to explain the unplanned outage. That's where a bad situation got worse. The URL was for a page called Unplanned Outage Page. Now that makes sense. But the cat who was in charge of the site that day changed the text on the page to Planned Outage, perhaps assuming that somebody would believe that the IRS would schedule a planned outage on the busiest day of the tax season. The headline noted that the outage began on April 17, 2018, And it was expected to end by December 31st, 99.99. That would make it an uncommonly long outage, approximately 7,981 years. And the text noted that the outage began at 2.50 a.m. Eastern Time on April 17th, 2018, and service would once again be available by approximately 6.40 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, September 22nd, 2016. In other words, the outage would end about 19 months before it began. Spare parts begins and ends exactly where you'd expect. On the website, and only on the website. This week, Russian hackers want control of your router, and manufacturers make it all too easy for them to succeed. Crooks want your iPhone. They have a trick that might convince you to give them access to it. If you need something else to worry about, well, botnets are still going strong. And IBM says, surprise, most of us are now concerned about data security. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.